Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is James, and I am one of the pastors here. And if this is your first time with us, I want to just thank you for being here. I'd love to meet you afterwards. Uh, It is an honor that you would come and worship with us this morning. And this morning we are continuing in a teaching series that we began several weeks ago that we've entitled The Big Picture. And this is where we are planning to go through all 66 books of the Bible One message at a time. They're overview messages that we want to go through. And today we have come to the book of Joshua. And I've entitled today's message, Joshua, the God who conquers. And I've entitled it that because it's primarily about how God fulfills his promise to Abraham to give him to give his descendants land by entering into the land of Canaan and conquering and driving out the inhabitants of the land. And, you know, there is no denying that the book of Joshua is filled with violence and blood. I'm not going to try to skip over that and pretend like it's not there. And because of this, many people, maybe even you this morning, are tempted to ask, you know, why is the God of the Old Testament, why is he so angry? You know, why, why can't he be more like the God of the New Testament? You know, the, the God who's loving and merciful and accepting and kind. And, and you know, this thought, is, is, it's nothing new, is it? I remember when we were back in college, Kelly had a classmate who uh, was not a believer, but she was like the sweetest and the most gentle-natured girl you would ever meet. And Kelly asked her, why why haven't you come to Jesus and, and become a Christian? And basically what she said is, she, says, I ha-, she said, I have a difficult time believing in a God that would kill innocent women and children. She was referring to the Old Testament. Now, what's interesting about this young lady is that a few years ago, she wrote Kelly and said, hey, listen, I was wrong. He's not who I thought he was. She had become a Christian. So that's the good side of that. And I hope to convince you of that this morning, actually. But um, if we're honest, I think that sometimes as Christians, uh, we can uh, unnecessarily think that we need to apologize for the God of the Old Testament. I remember when I was uh, in high school, I was talking to a friend who claimed to be agnostic. That's someone who says, I'm not sure whether there is a God or not. And we were discussing this, and he was sharing with me all the problems he had with the Old Testament God. And, and as we were talking, I remember a friend came up who was going to the youth group that I was going to, and he said, uh, l- let, me, let me explain what's going on here, David. He said, um, it's like this, the God of the Old Testament well, is the Father. And yes, he was angry and he was wrathful. And then in, in the New Testament, Jesus comes along and he's like, hey, Dad, hold on, I got this. And, and he starts showing mercy and, and kindness and forgiveness. And I remember hearing that and I was like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? In, in the Gospel of John, in the New Testament, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He also tells his disciple Philip, he says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. 
And so the, the point I want to bring out here is that the, the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. He hasn't changed, and also he doesn't apologize for what he did in the Old Testament. So we shouldn't either. And, but I do get it. I do get why people are angry when they think that innocent people are being conquered and slaughtered by an evil and oppressive God. I get that. I hope you do too. If that was happening, you should have a, have a problem with that. But let me ask you this. I want to ask you this question. Is it always wrong? Is it always wrong for someone to conquer someone else? Is that always wrong? Let me, let me take it another step for, further. Could there ever be a time where not conquering someone would actually be wrong? Let me give you an example. A few weeks ago, I was watching this movie called Captain Phillips, starring Tom Hanks. And it chronicles the true story of how after his cargo ship was hijacked by Somali pirates, Captain Richard uh, was taken hostage in a motorized lifeboat. There's a picture here from the movie um, that shows the uh, four of the pirates taking him in this motorized lifeboat, and they hold him uh, hostage, demanding $10 million in exchange for his safe return. And there is this scene where this U.S. Navy destroyer, this next picture here, it arrives with Navy SEALs. Um, there's helicopters surrounding it. There's Navy SEALs in the water. There's Navy SEALs in the boat. They have surrounded this lifeboat, and it's clearly this, this, these uh, pirates are clearly outnumbered. There is no chance that they are going to get away. And so they have two options. Number one, they can surrender and live. Or number two, they can resist and be conquered. And, you know, as I was watching that movie, I had several things going on in my mind, two, two thoughts I can remember. Number one, I was, I was hoping that good would prevail. I was hoping that good would prevail, that Captain Phillips would be rescued. But the second thing I was hoping was, is that the pirates would humble themselves and just surrender and give up, that they would do the right thing. That really is what I was wanting. I think most people watching that were desiring that too, but the pirates, they refused to give up, and so finally the Navy snipers have to do what they have to do. They take them out in order to save Captain Phillips. And my point here is refusing to intervene. If the Navy had just said, ah, we'll let it go, refusing to intervene would have been, in my opinion, and I think most of ours here, it would have been morally wrong for them to let them do that, to let evil prevail. And so in a similar way, in today's book, the book of Joshua, I, I want to show us how that it reveals that the God of the Old Testament, he's holy He's just, and he's morally good. I want us to see that this morning. And I want us to see that he is not a sinister deity who takes pleasure in destroying innocent people. And that we can fully and joyfully, we can love him, we can trust him, and we can serve him. Because the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Now, before we get into the book of Joshua, I want to quickly recount what's happened up to this point, and I mean quickly. In Genesis, God made a covenant with Abraham, and he promised him three things, right? He promised him descendants, 
He promised him land, and he promised that their, the descendants would bless all the nations in the world. In Exodus, while being enslaved in Egypt, Abraham's descendants multiply, so they become that great nation. God raises up Moses and leads them out, in, into, uh, out of Egypt into the wilderness. At Mount Sinai, in Leviticus and Numbers, God makes a covenant with these people. And for 40 years, they have to wander in the desert. Why? Because they were disobedient. They didn't believe God. And so God allows the, the older generation to die off. Last week in, in Deuteronomy, while encamped next to the Jordan outside of the Promised Land, um, Moses gives the law a second time, but this time to the new generation that's about to go in. And uh, he calls them to obey God. He says, don't do like your fathers did. Obey God, choose life. And so after this, Moses dies, and a man named by the name of Joshua, whom the book is named after, succeeds him, and he becomes the new Moses who will lead the children of Israel into the land of Canaan. With that said, let's get into this passage, chapter 1 of Joshua, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to you, that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Verse 3 says, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised just as I promised to Moses. So what we see here, right here in this passage, number one, this is God's plan. God came up with this plan. Man did not come up with this plan. God did. And if you're taking notes, the first uh, truth I want you to write down is this, that God keeps his promises. I don't know how many times we've actually used this as one of our points. Uh, the reason we, we do it is because we have to be continually reminded that God is good for what he says he's going to do. And he, he's reminding us of that again right here, that God keeps his promises. Now, if you remember, God told Abraham probably five or 600 years earlier what he was going to do, and he hasn't done it yet. That, that's a long time, isn't it? Did you know that the United States of America is only 247 years old, but to, and it's already crumbling? But... To us, that seems like a long time, doesn't it? Um, and many who knew about the promise that God gave to Abraham, actually he gave it to Adam and Eve, but he gave it to Abraham. Those who remember that were probably tempted to think that God wasn't going to come through, kind of like the dad who keeps promising his child, hey, I will be at the game, I will be at your recital, but, but doesn't show up. That's not God. Scripture teaches that it is impossible. It is impossible for God to lie. If God says he's going to do it, he will do it because he can do it. God always keeps his promises. Now, in verse 4, God describes the boundaries for the land. It says, From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. Now, I want to show you a map really quickly here in chapters 13 through 22. We're not going to be able to get there today, but if you need some good reading material, go there uh, tonight and read that. But this is how 
God told the people, this is how you're going to break up the land according to the 12 tribes. Um, So that's how Israel would have been divided up. In verse 5, God continues his encouragement to Joshua. He says this, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Verse 6, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law, all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And then, for then, you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Verse 9, have I not commanded you? Can you say this with me? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. Why? For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. If you're taking notes, the second thing I want you to write down is this. God is our strength and courage. God is our strength and courage. Now, four times, In chapter 1, God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. And what's interesting to me, I don't know if you've noticed this, but he didn't say, Joshua, you are strong. Joshua, you are courageous. Joshua, you got this, man. You know, actually, I don't know anywhere in the Bible where God ever says to us, you are strong. I'm not, if you know of a verse like that, please Bring it to me, because I, I, I've never seen a verse in the Bible that, where God says you're strong and he encourages us to believe in ourselves, as our culture tells us to do. I have never seen a verse in the Bible that says that. I do know, however, that there are countless times in Scripture, especially in the Psalms, where God's people express their weaknesses and point to God as their strength. Like in Psalm 18, 1 through 3, I want to look at that real quick. He says this, the psalmist says, I love you. O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Listen, Reach Life Church, when Jesus says, come, follow me, we need to remember it's not just Difficult to do that. It's impossible to do that in our own strength. I mean, Jesus has told us that over and over. He said that apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to remember that God, when he calls us to do something, he wants us to, he wants to be the one that empowers us to do it. And if God really calls us to do something, we don't have to worry about how it's going to get done. We just need to be obedient in the steps that he gives us as he gives them to us. And here, in this passage, God is reminding Joshua that the reason that he can be strong and courageous is not because he is strong and courageous, but because, let's look at verse 5 again, it says, because I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. In verse 9, he says, for 
the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. We need to remember that God is our strength. God is our courage. And then the third, third truth that I want us to see is that God goes before us. God goes before us to prepare the way. Now in chapter 2, this is one of the most famous chapters of the Old Testament where Joshua sends spies into Jericho to spy out the land. He, notice he doesn't send 12 spies this time. He ain't taking any chances this time. He only sends two, and they lodge in the house of a, of a prostitute, a prostitute by the name of Rahab. And the king of Jericho finds out about these spies, and so he sends his soldiers to arrest them. They come to Rahab, and Rahab hides the spies up on her roof, and she says, they're not here. they were here, but they're not here. They've gone out, and so she's out, out of the city, and so, so she sends them on a wild goose chase into the night outside of the city. And in verse 8, we pick up in the, in the narrative, it, it says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them. Now, this is, this is so important to see how God goes before us. I want you to really listen to what she says to them. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Now remember, the first generation said, they see us as grasshoppers. This is a verse that says, no, they didn't. God had gone before them. They could have conquered the land 40 years earlier if they had just trusted in God. All right, here we go. Verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, here it is again, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, look at this, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Did you catch what she's saying there? She is saying that we know that this land that we are in is not ours. We know that the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, is, is giving it to you guys. We, we know this, and we are terrified right now because we know that he wants you to have it. And we've also heard about what he did 40 years ago when he brought you out of Egypt. We know about these things. And he's also, we've heard that he's, he's recently empowered you to conquer Kings who were trying, who, who you weren't even trying to fight, who just picked a fight with you before you crossed the Jordan. And not only that, and here's what that last uh, verse 11, when she says, We know that he is the God in the heavens above and on earth. We know he's the God of heaven and earth. And so, what I'll, the reason I'm making such a big deal about this is because Rahab's testimony reveals that the inhabitants of the land knew about the God of Israel before they crossed the Jordan, before they come into his territory. And that's because God went before them to prepare the way. And listen, church, we need to, see, we need to understand that truth, that God is at work in our lives. A lot of times that's hard to see, isn't it? That he's actually at work in you. But you know what? He's not only at work in you. He's also at work in those around you. He's at work in your children. 
You know, parents, we want to raise godly children, and sometimes we just feel like we got to control it. Well, you can't always be with your children, but God is. You know that difficult person? Not, I'm not talking about you. That difficult person that you know, that's at work, that God is calling you to reach. Did you know that God is working in that person's life also? God is working in your current job and final financial situation. God is already at work. God is always at work. He's always at work before his people to, to prepare the way for his work. And as I've already said, God was already at work in Canaan, even before the Israelites crossed over. And again, the, the reason I'm making this point is because I want us to see, I want us to see that this was not some kind of like surprise air attack in the middle of the night. God is graciously giving the inhabitants warning. He's giving them time to consider all the things that have happened and to do what is right, to surrender, to wave the white flag. It's like those pirates that were in that motorized uh, uh, lifeboat who were given ample opportunity to surrender, but they wouldn't. And what, if you keep reading through the book of Joshua, what you will see in chapters 6 through 12 is that the inhabitants, they don't only resist God by refusing to hand the, the land over, but they also form alliances with other uh, people in the land to try to defeat the undefeatable God. But in Rahab's case, it's, it goes differently for her. There's Rahab, Right? What does she do? She pleads with the spies to show kindness to her, to her and her family. And they say, okay, we will, but you got to do this. Number one, they give her this scarlet cord to hang in her window so that when they come, they will be able to see where she's at. And she said, and then they say, make sure you bring your, whole, your family in with you. Everybody that's inside of your home will be saved. This, doesn't this remind you of Noah's Ark? Everybody that comes inside Noah's Ark would be saved. Doesn't this remind you of the Passover, the lamb where God tells them to take the blood of the lamb and the scarlet blood, put it around your doorposts? Everyone who's inside will be saved. Doesn't this remind you of Jesus? Everyone who comes to Jesus and is found in him will be saved. This is a picture of the gospel here. And that's cool. That's really cool. But you know what's even, I don't know if it's cooler, but this is cool too. Rahab, the former prostitute, it says that she, once they come and save her, it says that she lived in the land of Israel the rest of her life, basically. You know what's even cooler than that? If you go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, where, where they're bringing, where Matthew is writing out the genealogy of Jesus, you know who's in there? One of three women. Rahab. Rahab, the former prostitute, was the great, great, great grandmother to the 28th power of Jesus. She was his great grandmother. What does this teach us? All who will surrender to God, God can redeem and use you. He brought Jesus out of an of a impossible sinful situation. Now, chapters 3 through 4, God establishes Joshua as Moses' clear successor and the new leader of Israel. He does this by parting the Jordan, very similar to the Red Sea. It reminds us of the Red Sea. 
the people cross over on the dry land. And then they are, they're told to take 12 stones and build a memorial for the future generations so that they can be reminded of how, where, and when God brought them into the land. There's a whole sermon there uh, for us parents to our children to, to, to remind our children what God has done in our lives. Uh, chapter 5, uh, it records how the people of the land, when they heard about the Israelites coming over, that again, their hearts melt and their spirits fail. And once again, they know that God is advancing. And what is happening here is God is once again giving them a little bit more time, giving them a little bit more time to turn to surrender to him. And one thing I want to make sure that we're clear about with the inhabitants of the land, uh, these were not an innocent, God-fearing people. Um, As Pastor Terry reminded us last week, God had given them over 400 years to repent, to return to him. But instead, they just kept hardening their hearts to such a degree that their sins got more and more horrific. Even non-biblical historians tell us that they committed sins that were prohibited in the book of Leviticus. They went as far as bestiality. They also went to human sacrifice. Parents would take their children and literally sacrifice them on the altar to a so-called God Moloch, hoping that they would be given greater finances and blessing. There's another sermon right there in that um, of how, I, you know, we could go, I could never do that. But parents today sometimes sacrifice their children for a bigger house, a better car, a better vacation. So let's don't look at this and go, I can't, I would never do that. But the point that I'm trying to make here is these are not a innocent people. They were a dangerous people. They were a violent people who were opposed to God. And that's, that's why time and time again, God tells tells his people, don't interact with them and take on their practices. Don't worship their gods because it leads to death. Sin will destroy you. Something else we see in chapter 5, which is encouraging, is that the Israelite men prove that unlike their fathers, their forefathers, they are all in with God's program, with God's decision. We know this. You know why we know this? Because they get circumcised. Now, if you don't know why that proves that they were all in, please talk with, talk with Pastor Terry at the end of the service. He will be glad to explain that to you. But they were all in. They were very zealous. We are going to obey God. God said, be circumcised. They obeyed. They also celebrate the Passover for the first time in the land of Uh, Canaan, in the promised land. And listen, the the very day after they begin eating from the produce of the land, manna that had fallen in the desert for 40 years stops falling. Um, This is signifying the initiation of a new season for the nation of Israel. One other thing in chapter 5, which I think is actually one of the most important things, is that before conquering Jericho, which was a well-defended and fortified city, Joshua has this strange encounter with someone. Let's look at it in, in chapter 5, verse 13. It says, When Jos- Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. When, you, when someone is standing before you with a drawn sword, that means that they are preparing to advance. 
And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. Now, you might have a translation that says neither. He says, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. That reminds us of the burning bush, doesn't it? When Moses came into the presence of God and God said, Take off your sandals. Joshua is clearly in the presence of God. If you're taking notes, this is what I want you to write down. God is for God. This is something we have to grasp. Um, Some believe that the man described in verse 13 was a high-ranking angel. So I want to talk about him real quick. Um, But it is very likely that he was a a Christophany, that is, Jesus making an earthly appearance before his incarnation. And I'm about, um, on this subject, I'm about 78.3368% leaning towards it being a Christophany. Uh, I don't have time to go into why, uh, test why I believe, uh, Kate, why I believe that, but I am, I'm telling you, uh, I think that it is him. Um, we can talk more afterwards. The point that's what I want to make clear here is that when Joshua says, are you for us or, or are you for our enemies? He's actually asking the wrong question. We know this because uh, instead of taking sides, the commander of the army of the Lord says, no, I'm not for you. I'm not for your enemies. He says, I'm for God. God is for God. And and I think that understanding this truth right here is the key to following Jesus. Because what the commander of the army of the Lord is saying is, listen, I am not here to fight for anyone's personal agenda. Um, I don't exist to defend your kingdom that you're trying to, to create. And Joshua, I want to remind you that that the land that's being conquered here, this plan is not your plan. It's God's plan. It originated with God, not you. So I am for God. I am for his life-giving, redemptive purposes and for anyone else who is willing to submit to God. God is for God. You know why? Because God is for life. God, when God reigns, we live. And this is where a lot of people get tripped up, honestly, isn't it? Um, Not with the the Jesus that is gentle and lowly, the the one that's kind and patient, not the one who feeds the poor and takes care of the homeless, which he does that. that You can present that Jesus all day long, and people are like, yes, we love Jesus. It's not with, with that God that people have a problem with. It's with the God who exercises his supreme authority and who justly deals with sin. And it's also, listen, it's also with the conquering Jesus of the New Testament. See, I think one of the reasons that people think that there's a difference between the two gods is because we emphasize a lot of times grace. But within that grace, you have to understand what you're being given mercy for. And Revelation 
uh, let's see, 1911, clearly shows us Jesus as a warrior. I want you to see this. This is describing Jesus, and this is the Apostle John who saw a vision. He said, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are diadems, that's crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And, by the, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a, ro- a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe... And on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And you know, this is where this God, this is where he gets falsely accused of being a narcissistic, ego, you know, egotistical villain. And that's because I think people want a God who is loving. They want a God who's inclusive and accepting, but not a God who is holy, not a God who's commanding, not a God who's the Lord. Put another way, people want the lamb, but not the lion. It's kind of like um, back in the day when Kelly and I were dating and I asked her to marry me. And I think... Most of you know this, but if you don't know this, I'm, I'm not uh, full white, okay? My, my dad is from Burma, Asia, so I'm half Asian and half Caucasian because my mom was uh, born here in the States. And imagine if when we were dating, I said, Kelly, uh, will you marry me? And she said, yes, I love you so much. I want to marry your Asian side, but not your Caucasian or, or vice versa. If you could get rid of one of those, then I'll marry you. What would I say to her? Well, then you don't want to marry me. You don't want me because that's who I am. And I think in the same way, a similar way, we can come to God and say, you know, God, I want you if, and then you fill in the blank. And if I wouldn't accept that, if you wouldn't accept that about who you are, why do we think God would accept that? Who's perfect? What does he say to that? He says, no. He says, it's all of me or what? None of me. Just like the great missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, he once said, Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And Joshua, he realizes this about this commander who was in front of him. And it says that he fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? In other words, I surrender. In other words, you're the Lord. I am the servant. What's the plan? I am on your side. I asked it the wrong way. I am on your side. 
Tell me what to do. And you know what? That is the response that Jesus is looking for, isn't it? And if you read uh, the rest of the story of Jericho, God commands the people to quietly march around the city for six days. I think one of the reasons was to give this, these people another chance. You got another chance to come to God, just like Rahab did. And on the seventh day, the Israelites shout, they blow trumpets, and the walls of Jericho fall down. And everyone is destroyed except for Rahab and those who entered into her home. In the end, what this is teaching is that good prevails and that evil is conquered. And that's because God prevails. And so I want to just close this morning by asking everybody in this room, I don't care if you're a pastor or if you are an unbeliever, I'm, I'm asking all of us in this room, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on right now, this, this very moment? Have you been conquered by Jesus? You know the difference between Jesus and the God that uh, people want to say when he's an evil, moral monster is? When Jesus conquers you, he gives you eternal life and saves us from eternal death. And the question I, we have to ask ourselves, if you've already surrendered to him in the past, on a daily basis we are called to come to him and surrender daily. Have you fallen at his feet today to surrender for him? Because Jesus is like, Joshua is like Jesus. Actually, Jesus is the Greek name for Joshua. He would have been called Joshua during his time. But just as Joshua conquered the land, Jesus came to conquer, not the land the first time. He came to conquer the land inside of us to save us from our sin, to set us free from our rebellion, and to bring us into eternal life. Everyone who will surrender 